The Eye on Liverpool is a podcast for the public and the patrons of the St. Paul's Eye Research Foundation. The podcast provides an opportunity to discuss topics in ophthalmology as provided at St. Paul's Eye Unit and eye research performed at the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Science in the University of Liverpool. Today, I'm joined by Rhiannon Tudor-Edwards, a professor of health economics at Bangor University. Rhiannon, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about a really interesting topic, which I think probably most ophthalmologists, including myself, don't really have a great understanding of. And you know, Rianne, before we talk about this subject, could you just tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Hi, so as Sunil said, I am a Professor of Health Economics at Bangor University and I co-direct the Centre for Health Economics and the Medicines Evaluation. This is really quite a big health economics group and we divide our work between pharmacoeconomics led by my colleague Professor Dovick Hughes And then I head up the public health economics work. A lot of our work is alongside trials. So many trials now, and I'll speak about that a bit later, require health economics alongside them to gain funding from NIHR, HTA, MRC. And so that's the branch of research that I do. And I live on Anglesey in North Wales. That's great. How did you get interested in the subject or you know why did you choose to become a health economist? So my dad was a professor of medicine and my mum was a physiotherapist so I grew up in a household of hearing about the NHS and the problems that the NHS faced even 50 years ago and I went away to university to do economics and economics can be applied to many many fields so Economics is the study of how we use scarce resources to meet our wants and needs in society. And I think it's an incredibly interesting subject because it's it's ethics, it's measurement, it's philosophy, and it's really a study of one can apply economics to to agriculture, to understand agricultural policy. So, for example, us coming out out of Europe, how have our farmers been affected by by that? That's a lot of that's economics. You can apply economics to the labour market. So how has COVID affected the care industry? So or or what we're seeing at the moment with, with strikes in our public services of so a lot of that is about economics. And then you can apply economics to healthcare. And health economics came about I would say in about the 1950s, 1960s in the UK and about the same time in the USA. And I was really lucky because I went to study um, health economics out in Calgary at the University of Calgary and worked there. Really, I got amazing access to working in the Canadian healthcare system as a as a young um, academic. And then I came back and I knew that York was the place to study economics at that time. It's still a leading a leading centre for health economics. We have many more centres across the UK now. And I was really fortunate to study with Professor Alan Williams, who really developed the concept of the quality adjusted life year. And, you know, in 45 years, no one has really come up with anything better. And And I studied then the how to manage waiting lists for NHS services to think about the quality adjusted life years that people are missing out on by having to wait for long waiting times. And here we are now, you know, 30, 30, 35 years on, and I'm 
starting another piece of work, really looking at the same sort of problem, because after the pandemic, backlogs in NHS waiting lists are causing people a lot of uh, suffering and there are productivity losses to that as well. How can you factor in the productivity loss and how can you quantify that productivity loss when you're balancing funding a healthcare system versus the loss of productivity that a person, an individual might have as a result of the funding not being available and the subsequent delays they may experience to their treatment? Right, so I always talk about economics and health economics being amoral. Some of us might think sometimes some situations are immoral, but amoral means we're not making on the whole moral judgments about the relative deservedness of somebody for care. Now, I come to this because I mentioned that economics is about scarcity. And if we have a public healthcare system, then we're essentially rationing by waiting for elective care. And that rationing situation is is far more sharp now after the, the pandemic and the, the, the funding and staffing and morale issues that there are in the NHS and in social care now. Now, what health economics allows you to do is to weigh up the costs of a new medicine or intervention. And those are not just the costs of a new drug, but they're the cost of the whole pathway of care. This is a really important point because when we compare one treatment against another in a clinical trial, we're actually looking at the whole pattern of resource use of patients in each group, not just the cost of a new drug. And so a new new, new procedure might be expensive, but overall it might lead to a less costly or less invasive or less time in inpatients for, for patients and better outcomes. So to answer your question, often... We take an NHS perspective, which is only really concerned about the costs and benefits to the NHS and patient well-being. But sometimes we then go on, and this is very much appropriate to my own work in public health economics, to take a societal perspective. So to give you an idea of that, if if we're able to to get people back to work or, or, or reduce the mental health problems of being out of work then they have knock-on impacts for the for the treasury and for you know gross national product so really a healthy you need a healthy country to have a healthy economy i think it's probably that way round rather than thinking you have to have a healthy economy to have a healthy healthcare system the process of designating qualities to a particular disease or condition to me sounds really challenging because within one diagnosis, the experience or impact of that disease on an individual patient is so broad. For example, in a, in a patient, for example, with ocular surface disease, how do you quantify the qualities or the impact on that patient in order to fund that appropriately in the national healthcare system? Okay, so I, I first of all want to say that the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence has made a lot of use of quality-adjusted life years in the way they make decisions about whether to fund a new drug or intervention or device. And it's very it becomes very apparent when we hear about new cancer drugs coming out and they are, you know, if they come out at £250,000 per quality-adjusted life year, and that's a statistical healthy year for society. Now, they have set a threshold of £20,000 per quality adjusted life year, which is equivalent, it's actually twenty to £30,000, and it's kind of equivalent to an average household income, but it, it isn't really 
well documented where that figure has come from, but it's quite interesting that it matches what's used in the United States and in Australia. This kind of ballpark figure that at the moment the UK can, quote, afford that figure for a new quality adjusted life year to be given to society out of healthcare resources, which come from, of course, tax funding. I think for men- for clinicians and healthcare professionals who are caring for one individual after the next individual after the next individual, to, to change, put a different hat on, and I think it's probably easier for public health physicians and practitioners to have put this hat on, of being thinking about the resources we have for the NHS as a society as a whole, which is about 10% of our gross national product, and that is um, a bit lower probably than the European average and certainly way lower than the United States. Now, if you think about managing being a custodian of that money, so your job as a as a medic is to, to some degree, be a custodian of that, that resource, then you, you then think about, then it's the same idea as managing the road system and trying to, to stop a, st- a statistical death on the road, okay? So you don't know who that's going to affect. You don't know whether they're a worthy person or a child or an older person. So it, it would be really important to think about the fact that we're talking about things at a population level. So in terms of quality adjusted life years, there was a group called the Eurocall group who are still going now, who developed an instrument, the EQ5D. Some of you who do trials will know about EQ5D, three level and five level. This is still a, a generic health-related quality of life measure, which is used in studies and trials to measure patient-reported health-related quality of life. So our, our quality of life depends on an awful lot of things, not just our health, but obviously our health is, is central to that. Now, we then have to think about, you know, applying, asking a, a sample of the public what they would think it would be like to be in certain states of health. Now, the logic of asking them as taxpayers is is just that that they that that money is coming from taxpayer money. You could alternatively ask clinicians who have professional experience of dealing with patients with different conditions, or you could ask patients. And it's very interesting to ask patients and clinicians about health related perceived health related quality of life because they're not always the same answer. So really, the the cost per quality. And I think I think the way to think about it is so many public health interventions deliver a cost an extra year of healthy life for society at way under the twenty thousand pounds per year threshold. Many many cancer drugs used in end of life care deliver at a hugely higher rate, and it is very interesting to think that Nice has had a higher threshold of fifty thousand pounds per quality for end of life care and for orphan drugs. And, you know, I I put it to our listeners to just do a little thought experiment to think, well, do you think actually someone is more deserving of an expensive drug if they're in the last three weeks of their life than somebody earlier on in their life? Or or alternative, if they have something very rare compared to something very common. 
So that's why I said health economics is such an interesting subject, because it really is ethics as well as counting things. You know, we, 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 we are interested in the cost of what it costs for a new intervention. We're interested in men- measuring patient well-being. And that's something maybe we can talk about next is the growth in, of use in, in ophthalmology trials of health-related quality of life measures. That's really interesting, Rhiannon. It just makes me think that when we apply these principles to treatments or medications or interventions, that seems distinctly separate from, say, equipment or diagnostics or tools that we use in clinical practice. Say, for example, there's a piece of equipment, example being an OCT scanner, which can identify a disease earlier and therefore give better outcomes to a patient and they may require less treatment in the long term. Should we be applying these same health economic principles that you talk about to healthcare procurement generally, including devices, rather than just medication and prescribing? Well, we do. And, and you see, NICE advocates a lifetime perspective. We, we build really quite complicated economic models, which are um, often called Markov models, where they model a, a, a hypothetical cohort of patients through different stages of disease or lifetime experience. And then you can work out the lifetime. And this is why why the point you make is so important that actually, and I think I made it earlier, that we it is really not nonsensical to look at the cost effectiveness in one instance of one test or one you want to think about a piece of equipment in a, in the pathway of care for a start. And then I think you want to think about it in terms of, you know, if we're able to screen in on the high street instead of in inpatient setting or outpatient setting, what does that mean for both the cost effectiveness of care and also for patients not having to come to hospital? So the models become quite big and complicated, but they tend to take a, an NHS perspective and a societal perspective. So I'm, I'm involved with a study at, at St Paul's Eye unit in Liverpool, looking at a new scanner. And these are exactly the sorts of things we're thinking about. Do you think ophthalmology is slightly different when you consider health economics compared to other specialties? Right, that is a really good question. I think it isn't, but I think it hasn't. I don't think as much health economics has been applied to the field of health, to ophthalmology. Now, my personal experience, I don't know a lot of health economists working in the field of ophthalmology personally, and I know a lot of health economists across the UK and, and internationally in their work. I think there is a growing interest amongst ophthalmologists in measuring vision-related quality of life. And this is really important to health economics because we we measure costs of interventions, but we also need to measure outcomes in an appropriate way. And visual acuity is, is really a very limited way of measuring outcomes to a patient who is experiencing sight loss or living with sight loss. And so there's a recognition, and I'm seeing this from the literature, of a development of a lot more measures which think they move more closely towards activities of daily living in particular, maybe, but also to the emotional side of sight loss and the well-being side of sight loss and adaptation. So it's, and and actually also realising the 
the position of somebody visually impaired within a family or workplace or community. So I'm very interested. And actually, we, we, we're just starting to, to, to look more widely at the range of vision-related quality of life measures. There's some very interesting work being done in, in, in Denmark and the Netherlands and in Australia, as well as in the UK. And routinely now, I think, trials, certainly any trial that I go in as a co-applicant on, which is an ophthalmology trial, I, I pretty well insist on secondary outcomes being including a lot of these, as many as the patient burden can, can take, which are measures of, of, of patient vision-related quality of life. Then we try and put in a generic quality of life measure like EQ5D. I also want to maybe tell our listeners about the, the movement, which is a challenge to the quali, which has been led by a colleague of mine, Professor Joanna Coast and colleagues, which is really building on the work of Amartya Sen, looking at capabilities. So qualies are very functional. So measures like EQ5D are very much, can you do your... Can you move around? Can you do your usual activities? Are you anxious or depressed? Those are some of the questions covered in EQ5D. Now, the ice cap movement has been on a life course model to develop a range of measures. And all these questionnaires are only a page long, so they're not a huge patient burden to include in your academic trial or study or service evaluation. And they're all They've all they they've all been had psychometric testing and many of them are available in different languages as well. So the capability measures are interesting because they they are far more about the the emotional physical needs of people living in different conditions at different stages of life and they deal with do you have a, do you feel you have a role do you feel valued do you have love and friendship. Do you have a control over your life? And I think these are quite interesting. Personally, I think it would be very good if some of the ophthalmology studies in future really encompass and include capability measures like ice cap A for adults, O for, for uh, older people. And then there's a development of a children and young people one going on at the moment. We'll put some links, I think, into the show notes afterwards to some of these useful questionnaires that that might be might be of interest. Rhiannon, you know, we hear a lot about patient reported outcome measures, you know, PROMs and PREMs. And do you think there's a need to consider these tools and these aspects more when we consider the costs and impact of interventions for patients? Could you maybe tell the listeners a bit about PROMs and PREMs and other outcome measures and what you think about how they should be implemented in medicine as well as ophthalmology? Okay, so... Patient-reported outcome measures and patient-reported experience measures, and there's even something called a POEMS, which are patient-reported outcome and experience measures, are questionnaires which are disease-specific. And I think they are, as I said, routinely now included in, in, in clinical trials and other studies. And I think, you know, there's a lot of scope. It's not all about clinical trials. It's about cohort studies, building up registries, PPI, asking patients about their experience, both their experience of going through what might be quite a frightening procedure, having to make very difficult decisions about whether to, to actually undertake uh, an operation when, when the odds are not necessarily good for site preser preservation or site um, recovery. 
They're all really quite difficult decisions. And I'm sure uh, the listeners are, are, are often involved with trying to talk and guide patients through what are really, really quite challenging personal decisions. And have diff- we all have different attitudes to, to risk and, and we all value our health in our own ways. So to answer your question, I think they are important. They're being used right across the board now. It's not just in ophthalmology. There's some really interesting work to be done psychometrically looking at how they perform compared to the generic measures. Because, of course, unless you use the generic measures, which come up with qualies, so you need to use what are called preference-based measures, which are choice scenarios for for us to be able to generate qualies. And often PROMs and PREMs are not those you need to use those so that we can say, for sake of argument, make the comparison I made earlier, that you know the the cost per, per quality for for stopping someone smoking is 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 literally about two hundred pounds per quality adjusted life year. A cost for a new cancer drug, maybe fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand pounds per quality adjusted life year. So you're you're getting one year of healthy life, but in one scenario and one group of patients, it's costing you two hundred quid, and in another one, it's costing you. 100,000. And th- and obviously that that the, the concept health economists bring to the table is the concept of opportunity cost. So this is the concept of what are we giving up by devoting resources to this use over and above another use. And in my with my public health hat on, it's the perpetual problem of cure over prevention, right? And and then an ophthalmology setting, this may really I'm very interested in work to try to to quantify the need to prioritize site saving interventions things like treatment of wet amd even cataract surgery for elderly people to keep them mobile safe and independent in their own homes yeah it sounds obvious but it's quite it's quite necessary to quantify some of that to put it up against some of the other ways we use resources in the nhs that's really interesting. You know, Rhiannon, on a slight tangent, I'm just wondering, based on what you're saying, do you think that we need to consider the principles of health economics when we consider the salaries of healthcare workers? You know, I think that's particularly relevant maybe at the moment when we have so much disruption to patient treatments and outcomes because of strike action that we're experiencing at the moment. Okay, so you know, we've had a decade of austerity which has affected everybody in the UK. And, you know, I look at my my children in their 20s and I just think, goodness me, you guys have seen a lot in the last 20 years, really. And I I think the decade of austerity, which has transferred into the health and care systems, has left, an, uh, you know, an exhausted workforce. All I will say is it's extremely inefficient from a healthcare system to be paying locums and we have many unfilled posts in uh, senior academic and clinical posts yeah very difficult I'm not really the one to answer you know I'm not the one to answer that question but I think what we have to do is think about the the, both looking after the workforce the way we train young medics and I'm involved with our new medical curriculum at the University of Bang, Bang University because we have a new medical school and our curriculum is going to be centred around prevention. All our students will learn about prevention as well as the um, traditional medical curriculum. So 
it is it's difficult for me to answer your question in that it's not a straightforward supply and demand market for for medical skills. We're obviously seeing a lot of young medics and other healthcare professionals going abroad at the moment. It's not just about salaries, is it? It's about career opportunities. But I hope people can see that, you know, there are opportunities to get involved in research, small and large. It's quite interested, interesting to get involved with 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 public health as well, the public health side of, of ophthalmology. And, you know, really, a career is a very precious thing. And to be able to shape it and... If you have an opportunity to have some mentoring, I'm a, I'm a trained executive coach and I use those skills in university. But also, I think they are to, to, to allow people to really build the resilience to go through an academic or medical career so that you, you are able to, never mind flourish, survive, is, is a challenge at the moment. But Bringing an interest into academic reading alongside your your clinical job, I hope is 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 inspiring. Hard to do that at the end of the day, obviously. <laughs> hey, Rhiannon, you know, we've we're only really scratching the surface in this podcast when we talk about the principles and you know the, the principles of healthcare economics. And you know, what would you say to listeners who want to learn more about healthcare economics? Where can they go and what can they do? Or you know, are there any research opportunities that are available in this field? Right. So I think if you're, if you're serious about wanting to combine some academic research in your clinical career, I think the one good place to start is the NIHR to look at clinical fellowships. That It's, it's possible to, to do a, a master's by research. We offer a master's by research at Bang University in health economics. That's been really rewarding. I've had, I've had a few students through and often they are quite senior clinicians who've just said, do you know what, I've worked for 30 years, I really want to understand this health economics thing a bit better and I've got this data on my patients, how can I get a qualification out of it? I've got I've got a, a professor at a, in a, in Canberra in Australia at the moment who's you know grossly overqualified to do a master's by research but we're having such fun by talking about waiting lists in Australia and we've talked about cataract surgery waiting lists in Australia so you know there are opportunities to to pick that up I think don't don't be scared of picking up a cost effectiveness article I'm hoping even from listening to this podcast that some of the language is broken down for you it's not rocket science, but what we bring to the table is a, an interest and concern alongside large multi-million pound clinical trials. And the ones I've done have been with Moorfields and St Paul's Eye Unit at, in Liverpool. You know, these are multi-centre, large, large trials, an ASCOT trial and then the, the Clarity trial. I, I'll put details of some of those recent trials down. So, you know, it's possible for you to... to, to Join groups. The, the, the Faculty of Public Health has a has a group of health economics interest group, and also at the moment, my colleague Victoria Zierfo and I are running some statistics sessions for the faculty, the the Royal College of Ophthalmology. So there are a number of opportunities, and again, we'll put those in the show notes. I wanted to actually say a couple of things about. If anybody's interested in getting in touch with me at r.t.edwards at banger.ac.uk, I am very interested in a number of areas. I'm interested in waiting lists and the prioritisation of site saving and 
and if you like looking at the sorts of lists where people can't wait and looking at the characteristics of those patients and quantifying that that really does interest me another area that I've worked on was, was a study called the Depvit study looking at putting ECLOs into low vision clinics because we discovered in that study that we did in 20, 2016 that we found depression rates, clinical depression rates of 43% amongst patients attending low vision clinics. Now, you know, depression rates in the general public are, I think, about 23%. So much, much higher and at a time of real adjustment. And I'd like to see some more quantified evidence, both quantitative and qualitative, of providing actually not just making accessible counselling to people who are going through sight loss, but also I'm really interested, because I I said earlier that that I uh, am a qualified coach. I'm really interested in coaching made available. It's kind of lifestyle coaching for people where some doors have closed. So if you've been told you can't drive anymore because of your loss of sight, you know, what then do you do next? And or what, if you have to, have to give up work or you've had to make a big change in your life, supporting patients. And I appreciate that that is beyond the door of the ophthalmology department. But actually for the patient, that is their life. And when they bowl up at your clinic, I, I have a real thing about lighting in clinics. I think it's really important that, that the lighting and the environment in ophthalmology departments is easy for patients coming for what can be a difficult discussion, can be a very hopeful discussion as well. But I think there's an awful lot of room for particularly surgeons and other professionals working in ophthalmology to think about what happens to the patient when they leave the clinic. What's the rest of their life about? And how can, even just through signposting, how can life be better, made better for patients going through ophthalmology care? Well, Rhiannon, thank you so much for talking to me today. That's been really interesting. So I've, I've spoken at some length today about my interest and career of over 30 years in health economics. And in a lot of my work hasn't been about ophthalmology, actually. It's been about public health economics. And, but I, I do feel slightly qualified to, to apply health economics in this area because I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa aged four and have lived as a blind person. I am on my third guide dog, who is a big German shepherd called Bailey. And I wanted to share with you quite a nice personal story, because I only learnt two years ago when I went to have cataract and vitrectomy surgery at St Paul's in Liverpool, which actually was beneficial. It gave me a tiny, tiny bit more field and got rid of some floaters in my you know I've only got about two or three percent sight so this is very very marginal but it did give me a big lift in my 50s living as a very visually impaired person and still working full-time and I discovered that and and so I, I, I was linked in with the foundation in Liverpool St Paul's and applied for a grant recently to set up a registry of vision-related quality of life measures. And what I realised and and became apparent through this was that my father, Richard Edwards, was Professor of Medicine in the um, 80s and 90s. And he set up the first chair in ophthalmology at Liverpool. And 
to to build research in ophthalmology and i i never i never knew that and obviously he he probably did that knowing he had a daughter in mind but i i bet he didn't think that his daughter would be competitively applying for grants from the foundation with early career researchers and supporting them at bangor to collaborate particularly on building this you know in, we're going to build an international database at bangor and we'll put a link to our website where this will be available to everybody in the new you know this year is a registry of many 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 we found i think in the region of 50 vision related quality of life measures which are appropriate to different stages of the life course and you know i i hope my story can encourage people because i've lived a really full life as an academic health economist as a blind woman you know with two grown-up children both doing PhDs and a a wonderful supportive husband and I so I I just wanted to sort of leave this podcast on a personal note of saying life is strange (laughs) but I've appreciated doing this podcast for you and I'm very happy for people to get in touch with me about service delivery, about research in health economics and ophthalmology, or on a more uh, personal note about um, life uh, as a visually impaired person. Thank you, Rhiannon.